Welcome aboard to the Counter Vortex podcast with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, as always, on the uh, uh, evening of uh, December 17th, 2001. I'm here in New York City, and uh, we're very honored to be joined today with uh, Joanna Chu in uh, joining us by the miracle of Zoom from uh, British Columbia, Canada. Welcome aboard, Joanna. Did I, I get know. your name Thanks right? For having me. Yes, you did. It's okay. nice to see all your books in the background. You're uh, yeah. well, <laughs> I'm kind of uh, fanatically devoted to books and I was uh, very, very interested to read yours, which is hot off the press, China Unbound, A New World Disorder. Yes, uh, From uh, a house called um, Anansi, are they Canadian? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're the uh, Canada's independent publishers based in Canada and giving, you know, writers a lot of support. And that's definitely what they did with me. This is my first book. Um, you know, I'm a journalist for a newspaper journalism. So, yeah, they were great to work with. And right, you know, so a lot of attention. For, uh, you've been a correspondent in Hong Kong for um, The Economist and South China Morning Post and BBC World, et cetera. Et cetera, yeah. yeah. Um, I was, maybe a bit unusual because my seven years in China, I both was a staff writer for agencies and publications as well as freelance uh, quite a bit. Um, so I think it, it it's kind of shows in the book because I'm looking at different countries' perspectives. And yeah, as indeed. I was in China, uh, I was thinking about audiences all over the world because, you know, a commission from Dubai would come in uh, or, you know, BBC World or um, an Australian publication. And so I would kind of think about how to translate what's happening in China to different uh, audiences. So I think, you know, that was all very helpful. Right. Well, I mean, very much what your book is sort of grappling with is the, uh, the, the, the precipitous rise of China as a global power. <clears throat> And uh, extending what uh, somebody, one of the uh, the jacket blurbs called um, uh, the Chinese police state gone global. Yes. And you've got some really terrifying stories about that, which we'll uh, talk about. But all of this, I mean, uh, the really, um, I think, important thing about the book is that at the same time, you've got a very sharp eye on uh, the whole question of um, xenophobia in the West and the the very, uh, you know, ugly and, and, and ongoing tradition of that kind of, uh, you know, racist and xenophobic thinking about, about China. And, uh, you know, there's got to be uh, some kind of way to balance a really, uh, you know, hard-nosed and, and realistic response to China's rise as a global power and as, you know, I'll be mm -hmm. frank, a totalitarian state rising as a global power. And at the same time, uh, you know, not wanting to... Um, to you know, loan any um, uh, you know, loan any 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 weight or any comfort to you know the the really ugly xenophobia, which uh, mm -hmm. you know is definitely on the rise here in the West, the United yeah. States, Canada, and we'll yeah. Australia. Right. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out because that is really such a concern of mine. I've been covering human rights and politics in China since I was there. 2012, 
Um, and honestly, like in my first years there, people weren't paying attention to human rights issues in China. Um, I would write those pieces, but you know, looking at number of shares online, like it wouldn't make a big splash. Uh, I think it has also really been in the last few years, I argue in the book, where we see more uh, foreigners uh, who are more elites in the countries, um, who are frankly, including white men, like the two Canadian uh, hostages who were taken as kind of pawns um, in the Meng Wanzhou Huawei case. Um, I think only then when people started realizing, oh, China's police state gone global or China's authoritarianism and um, the risk uh, to foreigners in China is very real. Uh, and that's when we've seen more of these headlines and all of um, these questions kind of swirl around. In the past, it seemed as if um, China human rights was this kind of recurring concern, but it didn't reach that level of urgency that we see now. And it that's rooted in xenophobia and racism because um, actually for decades, uh, foreigners of Asian descent, just non-white descent have been targeted, have been silenced, have been intimidated. Um, but unfortunately, their cases weren't well known or widely discussed until you know foreign journalists being kicked out, uh, white men being detained as political pawns uh, became you know part of the headlines. Yeah, well, I'm afraid your book is uh, all too timely, given uh, you know a lot of what's in the headlines now. And you sort of uh, you've got a, a chapter each about several uh, several countries around the world, including Canada, Australia. Italy, Greece, Turkey, Russia, and finally the United States and how they, uh, mm -hmm. <clears throat> they're all relating to uh, the rise of China as a global power. But your first, um, your first chapter is about China. It's, it's, uh, each chapter mm -hmm. is named after uh, the place that it's about. And the first one is about Beijing. Uh, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the case of um, one of the many uh, rather horrific and terrifying cases that you discuss in the book of Chen Gui Kui, who was uh, the wife mm, of yes. uh, the, the dissident attorney, She Yang, if I'm pronouncing these names corrected, who was one of those who was arrested during the so-called um, 709 crackdown, which began on mm -hmm. uh, July 9th, 2015, when several lawyers were, uh, were swept up. And uh, you interviewed... Mm -hmm. um, his wife, who had actually managed to uh, to flee China and had mm -hmm. some very narrow escapes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so her story, I think I've covered so many dramatic uh, stories in my time in China, but when I was thinking about an introduction for my book or at the beginning of my book, I was really thinking about her case because um, I wanted to write the book in an accessible way that's really driven by real human stories. Um, to try to kind of explore different facets of why uh, China's growing authoritarianism is concerning and also why along with that, uh, the Western response, how Western countries have been slow to react or have been complicit or make matters worse with some of the kind of toxic discourses on China we see, including what you mentioned, xenophobia. Um, and her case is international because what happens in China is international. Her husband was a, a major uh, human rights lawyer and he was swept up in the 709 crackdown on uh, the legal profession in China. So people who were actually brave enough to take on pretty um, 
like cases that won't be illegal or sensitive here in Canada or the US. Um, for example, a farmer losing his land and wanting to you know, sue the local government, he would take cases like that. But in China, where 100%, nearly 100% of um, cases are convicted, people are found guilty where there isn't a rule of law system, the lawyers who are really trying to insist on doing their jobs properly, um, they were cracked down on. Um, they were arrested in a police sweep. Um, and after that, some were sentenced to five or seven years in prison. Others uh, who were less prominent got their disbarred so they couldn't practice anymore. Um, so that really means that the people who are trying to use uh, legal means to challenge um, state power or to just complain about average things that anyone in, uh, around the world in rule of law systems would, um, like losing their land, for example, um, aren't able to do so anymore. So her, she is, you know, prominent in her own right. She's a, a environmental science professor at Hunan University, but she wasn't involved in politics at all. So the fact that her family had to go through all of this trouble and just drama shows that um, it wasn't a choice of hers to get swept up in this. Uh, after her husband was detained, she couldn't, couldn't hear from him for uh, over a year and police were harassing her, trying to get her to shut up about her case. She was trying to talk to international media to drive attention to her husband's whereabouts. Um, so finally, she decided she would try to escape China with her two young daughters, uh, one who was uh, four or five years old, just, you know, literally clutching her teddy, uh, leaving the house in the middle of the night. Um, they fled by car, by foot, decided to try to make their way overland um, to Thailand. So there was a network of supporters and friends who basically escorted them along the way. They mostly traveled um, at night, um, often in places where they were worried about, particularly worried about being monitored, um, like dense brush. Um, and, you know, in, in dense brush, like just, you know, hacking through the forest, like not on, yeah, not on trails, um, you know, with two kids. They hiked over the mountains at night yeah. to get out of China and into Thailand. Exactly. So, you know, miraculously, they made it like a woman and her two kids, including um, a five-year-old, to, um, to Thailand. And they made it to a safe house and they were awaiting because the youngest daughter was born in the U.S. So again, an international story because she's an American citizen. Um, the youngest daughter was an American citizen that was being harassed and followed by police to the point where they were making this really brazen escape from the country. Um, even though, you know, the wife and the kids were not accused of any crime. Uh, it was their dad uh, who was accused of things like subversion for doing his work as a lawyer. Um, so in Thailand, um, Chinese oh, Thai police, <laughs> Thai police uh, showed up at their safe house. Uh, they're not sure how the word got out about their whereabouts because they were pretty careful. They didn't have their phones with them. Um, not sure how they were tracked, but you know, Thai police brought them to this detention center, saying, you know, we have to deport you back to China. And you know, they were after center. escaping. Yeah, detention center, immigration detention center in Thailand. Um, so they were just inside, just thinking they're going to be deported and that they would also end up in jail in China, just like their father. 
um, like her husband, but out of nowhere, a US embassy official showed up inside the detention center and got the family out through a back exit. And then there was a high-speed car chase towards the international airport um, in Thailand and in, in Bangkok. And Bangkok, yeah. um, it ended up with these embassy officials and the family just fighting inside the airport terminal about what would happen to the family. And I think because the youngest was an American citizen, Americans had some leverage, um, but you know, she didn't tell me exactly what happened, but now they're in Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, they made their way to Texas and they were able to leave. Um, this happened in the middle of actually a pretty friendly time between China and the US. This was when President, former President Trump was um, kind of trying to buddy up with President Xi Jinping. They were having a summit uh, in Florida. Um, so correct? I think that story, yeah, 2017. So it kind of shows um, how what's happening with China's authoritarianism is global because China is not like a hermit kingdom where its people don't have connections with the world. Um, uh, professor, a uh, wife, a uh, lawyer, husband, they had connections, they studied abroad, they uh, traveled overseas, they lived overseas, and um, their daughter is an American. So, and it also brings into question, like, why were Thai authorities uh, feeling like they had to cooperate with Chinese authorities. In fact, but, just years but, before- but you actually wrote, um, What you actually wrote in your account of this, which really surprised me, is that there were actually Chinese state agents who were involved in this um, confrontation at the, at the detention center. Oh yes, thanks for jogging my memory. It was Thai, Chinese, and US. Uh, officials. Uh, right. So this is this is what trying it was, to track down this family. On what authority were uh, were Chinese agents acting on uh, on Thai sovereign territory? Mm -hmm. that, I mean, that's, that's a really question because um, I spoke also a pretty brazen kidnappings that have happened in recent years and also in the past, such as five Hong Kong booksellers, two with dual nationality, one British, one Swedish who two of them, one was in Thailand, one of them, uh, you know, I, I forgot where he was, but they showed up uh, in a Chinese jail. Um, and how did one of them get from Thailand after, after having disappeared, to the mainland? After having disappeared mm -hmm. from, uh, from, I believe from Hong yes. Kong and from, and from Thailand, they, they uh, yeah, so they in, in, in detention in China, and we're sort of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, pretty much obviously coerced into making some kind of confession. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, false confessions on TV. Right. And again, these two men, one of them being Swedish, one of them being British, their nationality, their foreignness was denied. They were forced to say, to confess that they were actually Chinese. Um, so, and then we have the Western culpability because um, again, in the narratives around it and the lack of media coverage, I think a lot of people kind of accept the idea that Beijing promotes is that if you have like any chi connection, family connection to China, you're essentially Chinese um, and you're subject to the laws there. Even if uh, not only are you a Hong Kong resident, but you also are Swedish or British 
in my case, Canadian. Um, you know, I've been stopped by police doing my reporting work in China and, you know, have been worried about these things happening to me because my passport, my Canadian passport says born in Hong Kong. Um, so people have asked in the past, well, if it says you're born in Hong Kong, then you're a Hong Konger, therefore you're Chinese. Um, there's the idea that they don't really accept it. Um, and on top of that, people around the world kind of support that because, you know, growing up in Canada, people ask, where are you from? And they don't accept that I am Canadian. And that puts a lot of people in vulnerable positions. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, yeah, so there, there's a perfect sort of um, illustration of how this uh, Western xenophobia is ironically sort of playing into the hands mm -hmm. of the uh, Chinese global police state, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Another irony I will point out is that, uh, you know, one of the, the key grievances uh, during what's now called, uh, you know, China's century of humiliation, roughly from the opium wars through the triumph of the revolution in 1949, was so-called, you know, European extraterritoriality, as it was called, and the notion that, you know, the European powers had the right to um, enforce their own laws on Chinese territory and to not be subject to Chinese law. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's certainly an irony to see China behaving in sort of similar manner today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point to um, yeah, highlight. Um, in the book, I tried to provide these case studies and different countries' perspectives where I actually went and traveled to different Western countries to examine their background and history with, with Beijing. And um, in the beginning chapters, I talked about, you know, the century of humiliation when Western powers, um, at the time, Japan was involved at, in, at some points, um, basically pillaged China's treasures, used gunboat diplomacy, you know, their military might to force the opening of China's ports uh, when the Chinese emperor at the time didn't want to have such openness to trade with the world. Um, and, you know, part of the grievance was, you know, the West was able to set up these foreign concessions on Chinese land. You, you think about Shanghai uh, in the twenties and it's kind of romanticized now that it had these Western people there, <laughs> these Western buildings, but to many people in China, including the current generation Chinese leaders, you know, that pretty recent history was deeply humiliating that China was forced to, um, take uh, turn over land, turn over Hong Kong to the British um, and accept these terms. But now you see there's like this kind of overreaction to the point where Beijing is acting exactly, like you said, uh, the actions it has criticized from Western imperialists. Um, Hong Kong, the national security law, um, it applies anywhere in the world. So there have been arrest warrants for American citizens <laughs> uh, who violate this national security law. And the law is so vague, basically it criminalizes criticism of the Chinese government in many ways. Like people have been arrested for things like um, trying to take part in an election, a uh, primary election uh, in Hong Kong. Um, are you, many this was, uh, are this still this in jail today. Elaborate on that, that, that the primary election in, I believe, last year had been um, had been postponed mm -hmm. uh, ostensibly uh, because of the uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic, and people tried to take uh, part in, as I understand it, people mm -hmm. tried to take part in a sort of a, um, a shadow election or unofficial election mm -hmm. in spite of the official election having been banned, 
and later faced uh, criminal charges for this? If I got that more or less right? Yeah, so this is um, one of, so the opposition, which is a pro-democracy camp in Hong Kong, wanted to hold an election to thin the field of potential candidates so that they would have a you know, better chance of winning. Um, and it was actually done prior to the national security law coming to place. Um, but these politicians were um, persecuted with under the national security law after the fact. Okay, so this um, was so, uh, this was not actually an official primary. This was more of a uh, a sort of an informal polling process, which was taking place to uh, so that the, the pro democracy opposition could um, choose their own candidates to field in the official election. Yeah, so it wasn't illegal at the time. Um, it was later criminalized. Uh -huh. um, so, so that's how. So that's how in Hong Kong there's an issue where there's people say it's um, lawfare um, or rule by law where civil rights are have eroded so much with the use of new laws. Mm -hmm. um, lawfare so, as opposed to warfare. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I mean, there's been a real contraction of uh, political space in in Hong Kong certainly over the past. Uh, the past decade, I think you pointed out that Reporters Without Borders placed, um, you know, Hong Kong on their press freedom list as a, uh, a very high ranking uh, just mm -hmm. a, a decade ago. I think it went from 18th to 80th, if I got that right, over the course of the past 10 years. Yeah. yeah. yeah and I was there actually watching it happen because my first job, like you mentioned, was for the South China Morning Post, uh, which was a Hong Kong based paper at the time owned by Malaysians. Um, so I was writing for this local paper and was seeing like the pride a lot of people at the newspaper had in its independence, its ability to cover China and Hong Kong freely, um, but that coming under very like piecemeal attacks where some pieces would mysteriously disappear from the website or it would be cut down to a little stub in the paper, like buried like in the middle. and there are a pattern emerged, like these weren't um, stories about a wide range of issues. These were stories of, that were sometimes about press freedom eroding in Hong Kong. Like that happened to me. I wrote about uh, a report showing erosion of press freedom in Hong Kong. And, and, you know, I got in trouble with the CEO of the paper calling me a crusading journalist for just covering <laughs> uh, this issue. You a, calling you a what kind of journalist? A crusading journalist for covering... Is that a bad thing? <laughs> um, but you know, the report was not a, an opinion piece. It was saying that the World Newspaper Association was concerned about the erosion right. of press freedom right. in Hong Kong. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. um, actually, a pretty boring piece, like a you know, you know, a well, statement. Did, did they allow piece, it to he run? Was so angry it? about it. Did they allow it to run? Um, so it was cut to a couple paragraphs and stuffed into the middle of the paper. Mm -hmm. So this kind of awareness where they didn't want to completely kill it because, you know, that would, it was already online. They, right, right, they right. didn't want the drama of, you know, you completely killed, but you're like, oh, look, it's there, but it's buried right. <laughs> and, and completely cut down. Okay. Um, and this was a relatively benign piece. Um, and it happened all over the city where 
you know, it was kind of like a two-faced situation where to their faces reporters would be told you can report freely but then all of these actions would take place where the pieces actually wouldn't run or columnists would get fired editors would get fired after certain pieces um, that were more critical of uh, the Chinese government or the Hong Kong uh, officials and elite appeared um, a an editor of uh, Ming Pao, who was involved in the International Consortium of Journalists that did investigative reporting on the wealth, uh, hidden wealth of uh, uh, President Xi Jinping's family members. Um, he was attacked by a group of thugs um, with a meat cleaver, um, a man riding on a motorcycle. And, you know, later, you know, Hong Kong police did investigate, you know, arrested some perpetrators, but never found the mastermind behind these attacks. Um, and again, and that was part of this was, chill, was, this was fear. He, he survived, uh, but yeah, definitely badly injured. So mm. anyways, that was also when I was living there. So from then to now, the difference now is that it's no longer kind of uh, mysterious, like where the lines are, like articles mysteriously disappearing. Now people are living under a draconian national security law in Hong Kong, where, you know, collusion with foreign forces is criminalized. So does that mean um, people don't really know how to interpret it? Can they do a joint investigation on China's leaders uh, with an international group? Um, many people aren't sure of that. They're not sure if that will actually land them in jail. So that's like the, I guess, to <laughs> the people who designed it, kind of the beauty of this law that it is so vague that people end up self-policing, self-censoring, not knowing where the red lines are anymore. But, you know, that's how mainland China has opposition voices has been forced to close, Apple Daily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a whole newspaper was forced to close. Um, under the law, their assets were frozen, so they weren't able to put out the paper. And the publisher is now facing criminal charges under the national security law, mm -hmm. Jimmy Lai. Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. Okay, do we want to talk a bit about your own country? Your next chapter after Beijing and Hong Kong, mm -hmm. your next chapter is Canada. And of course, you know, uh, Canadian-Chinese relations have been very much in the news recently due to the uh, Meng Wanzhou affair. But uh, there's a lot of other less prominent cases which you discuss, which uh, definitely deserve more attention. Do you want to talk about the case of Cherry Wong? Uh, Cherry Wong, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so with the Meng Wanzhou case, again, in the beginning where I mentioned it to Michaels, um, that, that's when people started talking about Or you should explain that a little bit. Policy. The, the two Michaels, you should explain that. Mm -hmm. Yes, in Canada, in a short form, because we've written and talked about their cases so much, yeah. we call them the two Michaels, um, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. Um, so when I returned to Canada, actually, I thought the China story would be behind me. But in December 2018, like months after I returned, uh, Meng Wanzhou, a uh, executive for Huawei, one of China's, you know, national, like leading national champion, they were really proud of this company, which was 
reportedly private, but has a lot of uh, Chinese commerce party links. Um, she was detained in Vancouver at the behest of US authorities, the Justice Department in the US, to face fraud, to be extradited, to face fraud charges um, related to her work um, in the US. Particularly uh, related and, to attempts you know, to the sanctions around Iran. Yeah, so Chinese leaders were very, very angered by this detention. Um, I think people in the US, the officials must have underestimated how treasured this company is. Um, Meng Wanzhou is, she's kind of like, I compared her to like Kate Middleton, like she's basically royalty in China. Um, so they were so furious and also furious at Canada. Um, Canada actually got the brunt of anger for cooperating with this extradition request, even though it was, we were legally bound to do so with an extradition treaty with the US. So um, weeks later, they arrested, they picked up two Canadian men, one Michael Kobrig, uh, a friend of mine, a former diplomat who was on leave um, and working an NGO job in China, doing research, and uh, Michael Spavor, who wasn't involved in China work at all. He lived in northeastern China as a convenient way to uh, do his work related to cultural exchanges and uh, tourism and research into North Korea. So they were arrested and it became really clear that they were arrested in retaliation for Hmong. Um, and of course, this got a lot of people very upset. It became basically the main um, problem and conflict in uh, Canada-China uh, relations, definitely, and also a major point of the unraveling tensions and spiking tensions between the US and China. Um, so, and it also brought light to how China has used political hostage taking as a as a tactic. Um, but you know, myself and others tried to remind people that it's not. It wasn't the first time that uh, hostages were taken. Um, it's kind of been a tactic China has used um, in the past. I think um people who ended up who were foreign but ended up in China uh because of political issues included Hussein Salil a Uyghur Muslim who was seized by police in Uzbekistan in 2006 while visiting his wife's family and sent to China um and little is known about his case um there has been very little international attention on it um, he's still being held yeah he's still being held and what was interesting is the Michaels were finally um, released um, almost you know three years into their detention when Hmong struck a deal with the US um, uh, Justice Department so that she she could be released. Yes. Um, yeah, it's called a deferred execution agreement. So she could leave with some kind of face intact like uh, for, for all involved. Um, she wasn't you know found not guilty but it was a deferred prosecution. So the same day she was able to go back to China, they let the Michaels board planes to go back to Canada. Um, and what was concerning was that there was kind of like a sigh of relief uh, that this happened. But in the intervening years, uh, Canadian authorities had promised um, a kind of an overhaul of its foreign policies in general um, to address issues such as arbitrary detention of its citizens and, you know, China's growing authoritarianism, authoritarianism um, but and 
there was an idea, you know, senior officials in Canada told me that now that the two Michaels are released, um, they could go back to status quo of not really having um, much of a strategy <laughs> to, to issues like this. Um, so the worry is that this will happen again in the future and nothing will have changed. And meanwhile, <clears throat> Canadians of Chinese descent in Canada have been coming under harassment for uh, mm -hmm. for speaking yes. out. Yes, and again, um, they haven't been able to get that support. Uh, Sheree Wong, uh, she was she is uh, a Canadian activist who's been really up outspoken on things to do with Hong Kong because she's part of uh, kind of Hong Kong uh, international diaspora, um, and she's been harassed. Uh, she's not one of many who have been harassed, but she's one of the few who actually spoken up about it and tried to report to police. Um, she said that um, um, they, Chinese um, uh, officials warned her about her activities and at one point called her at a hotel room, um, making her really worried about her safety. Um, and, and my book covers other examples uh, such as people who actually identify themselves as Chinese officials and not really just implying so, showing up at the doorsteps of Canadians. Um, again, this was in 2019 when there were international solidarity marches in support of the protests in Hong Kong, um, telling these Canadians to stop speaking out or stop attending these events or else. Um, and the implication was that, you know, they could come into danger or their family members in Hong Kong or China uh, could face uh, troubling consequences. So there's been these global overreaches of Chinese police um, and officials um, to intimidate and threaten people of Chinese descent to stop speaking out. Um, and Harry Wong was, was contacted by actual Chinese state officials or more like um, <clears throat> activists who were um, sort of in, in the orbit of the Chinese Communist Party through the, uh, the so-called um, United Front Work Department? Mm -hmm. Yes, so I think a lot of the issue is that when these threats are uttered, um, they're not showing you a badge <laughs> or who they are. Um, it's kind of done in this kind of often murky way where people don't know who is threatening them. So that's why these activists and you know journalists who are being targeted, they want Canadian police and authorities to do investigations um, to, to find out more about why these activities are so commonplace. But the problem is that speaking with police here and elsewhere around the world, there's no department, there's no um, training or policies kind of in existence that could uh, facilitate such investigations. Um, there's police have admitted to me, even just through email statements that they lack uh, Chinese language resources in their police stations um, when people have received death threats, when they've been beat up, um, kind of the excuse like, why didn't you look into this? Uh, people have actually, police have actually said they lack language resources 
So like I find, I found that pretty shocking in my research. Okay, moving on to Australia. Uh, do you want to speak about the uh, the case of Feng Shangyi? Uh, Feng Chongyi, yes. Um, so Feng Chongyi, um, he is a prominent professor in in Australia in Sydney. Um, I had spoken with him in the past, um, and I was working in Beijing for Asian Trans Press um, when friends were kind of frantically messaging each other and, you know, trying to tell journalists that they, this professor was missing, Feng Chunyi. Um, he was visiting uh, Guangzhou, visiting a city in China for his research at the time. Um, so I was covering that and to my surprise, Feng actually replied to me over email saying that he was being kept in a hotel and being prevented from leaving China. Um, but that, you know, he was safe. So he arrived back in China in 2017 after being detained for a week. And it was kind of mysterious that um, well, what they were asking him about. Um, he did, yeah, so he didn't really talk about it at the time. Um, so unbeknownst to people at the time, the Australian government was working on this probe into foreign interference uh, into China's uh, foreign influence efforts and intimidation, you know, the cases um, I spoke about in Canada were happening in Australia. So um, he, Fung was actually detained in relation to this secret investigation, this probe the Australian government was working on that had, that wasn't public yet. So when I visited Sydney in 2019, that's when Fung opened up to me and explained the circumstances that he was trying to be helpful with, um, with this government uh, probe. He was good friends with the lead of uh, this report for the government. Um, so they were questioning him about that. Um, and you know, this, this was you know, an Australian it, government investigation into uh, into Chinese yes. um, espionage activities in within Australia. And foreign interference was a catch-all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And it led to a suite of new anti-foreign interference laws in Australia, uh, which do apply to any uh, nation. Um, and require and um, things like more transparent reporting from Australian politicians of foreign donations. So in Australia, it's really interesting because they've shifted so much from being so open to uh, having very um, friendly ties and strong economic ties with China to this more critical and more um, wary stance well, um, and in Australia, I think, moment between Australia and China, I mean, things are very tense. Yeah. Um, but you know, a few years ago, five years ago, this wasn't the case. Right. Um, so Fung was really working at that intersection where things really shifted. Mm -hmm. um, and some say it has shifted to the point where there's too much hawkishness on China, um, to the point where um, a report from Lao Institute found that. Chinese Australians or Australians of Chinese descent feel that even though whilst many support um, stronger laws against foreign interference, they think that um, because of this increasing uh, criticism of 
the Chinese government that's led to increasing racism and scapegoating yeah. of them in Australia. Who did um, this so report? The, uh, the Lowy Institute. The L-O-W-Y, the Lowy Institute. Ah, in yes. Australia. Um, yeah, so it's interesting because Fung talked about that too. Um, just a need for preciseness in, in the language. Yes. Um, otherwise, you know, people get confused, they get angry, they want someone to blame. They see someone on the street who looks Chinese and they feel justified in lashing out against a Chinese looking person um, because of what the Chinese, not just the Chinese government, but, you know, a few specific leaders who are um, calling the shots <laughs> in the Chinese government, what they're doing. So it's, that's unfortunate, but Australia is a really interesting case study. So do you want to talk about uh, <clears throat> the Chinese interest in, um, in Port Darwin, which have uh, mm -hmm. attracted a lot of suspicion? Yeah, so at Port Darwin, I started um, that Australia chapter in the book because it, that, that was an example of how many people felt that stronger anti-foreign interference laws and kind of um, awareness was needed in Australia because um, a local government in Northern Australia was able to um, sign off to a Chinese uh, company, a lease to an Australian port, Port Darwin, for 99 years um, without um, the oversight or knowledge of the national government. And later on, you know, the company the company CEO bragged about how this was a win for Beijing's Belt and Road project. You know, it was a geopolitical All right, now, which, win. Which, which, which um, company was this? Uh, it's called Landbridge. Mm -hmm. um, well, we make clear what the Belt so, and Road project is. Yeah, there's so much to go into. I encourage people to read the book because yes, yes, even yes. like well, well, briefly, months the Belt into... Road project is this big uh, infrastructure project which the, the Chinese state has planned, which would facilitate international trade. And it's got, um, uh, you know, it's, it's got a footprint in several countries across, basically across Eurasia. Mm -hmm. And now it's part of the Chinese constitution. So definitely, even though um, on paper and in statements, it's China says it's not, you know, a political um, project is really aimed to expand infrastructure networks around the world. Um, at, at the very least, it's, a, it's China's landmark um, soft power mm -hmm. um, vehicle through investment, through money, basically, through funding. A lot of projects that, frankly, World Bank or other banks, uh, European banks, wouldn't fund for reasons such as feasibility. Um, so, you know, that's part of the picture where... No, here in the US, um, in Australia, the views on China become more negative and critical. People want their government to be more nuanced in their approach to not just, you know, expand economic ties and trade in China at all costs. Um, but in many other parts of the world, um, there isn't that kind of um, big shift in public opinion or public awareness about China's human rights issues. So, does this lease at Port Darwin uh, remain in place? It remains in place, but it's been constantly um, under review. Let me quickly check if it has been reversed. Uh, but, you know, that just showed that Australia um, 
five years ago was very different to how it is now. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and there's still, there, you know, the latest headlines from early this year is still Australia mulling whether it's able to force this company out of um, Port Darwin. Okay, then moving on to Greece, there was a similar controversy around uh, the Chinese shipping company Costco winning a contract to uh, renovate the port at Piraeus. You want to speak a little bit about that? Yes. Um, so, so just kind of to continue the idea that, you know, power through money and whether it, this is a new form of um, colonialism, like I argue that it's not so cut and dry because many of these recipients of Belt and Road funding or Chinese investments, they're proactively seeking out um, this funding and, and perhaps acting out of gratitude. So Greece um, um, accepted an offer from the Chinese state company, Costco, a shipping company to take over uh, its major port in Athens, Port of Piraeus. And visiting there, talking to dock workers, many are, are saying that it was a successful takeover, that they this company had more resources, the port was on its last legs, and with the Chinese money and management, it was able to kind of recover and really uh, increase its productivity. Um, but then the question that Greek academics I spoke to are asking is whether there was a price to it. Um, in uh, 2017 and other years, uh, Greece twice vetoed um, United Nations level criticism of China, uh, using its veto power to stop, for example, uh, move by the European Union to uh, craft a statement on China's treatment of LGBT and other uh, minority groups. This was the first time such a statement was tabled and discussed and not able to pass. So people wonder if Athens was asking, acting out of yes, kind yes. of a gratitude, like choosing to side politically with China. And this was what um, Greece was on the net, what was on the uh, UN Security Council, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> And then uh, not, I was not uh, surprised to find out that. Oh, sorry, it wasn't at the UN Security Council. It was at the, one of the human rights bodies. General Assembly. Mm -hmm. General Assembly. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, there isn't actually veto power at the General Assembly. Let me. But. Uh, <clears throat> Voted against it in any event. Was, voted um, against it in the general. Yeah, voted against it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, and then there was similar talk about um, some kind of an arrangement for the uh, the port of Palermo in Sicily, which is actually one of my favorite cities. I visited there around twenty years ago. <laughs> I'm dreaming about going back. Beautiful place. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. So the veto was at the EU level. Yes. Um, yes. It was at the Human Rights Council. That's, it was the UN Human Rights Council. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Going back to Greece. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Um, so, looking at Palermo, that's a, that's again. Uh, when I was talking about how views in China aren't uniform around the world, in Italy, actually. Um, 
when I visited in 2019, the view on China was very positive. Um, speaking of entrepreneurs, like doing a review of Italian media articles, um, Xi Jinping had just visited. Uh, Italy had just signed uh, an MOU, a memorandum of understanding on uh, like joining the New Silk Road project, the Belt and Road project. Um, and there's all this optimism that China basically would come in and buy up all of these Italian ports and factories that were struggling. Um, and Italy got a lot of flack for its allies, its traditional allies in the US and the EU um, for being so gung-ho about these investments. Um, but what was interesting is that when I actually went to Palermo, one of these rumored ports that the Chinese would take over, the mayor basically was laughing because there were no plans. Um, a lot of it was just kind of fluff and expectation and almost just like over eagerness mm -hmm. that Beijing would kind of be a savior, this economic savior, which I also saw definitely talking to people in Greece. Um, so, I mean, that was fascinating. And at the time, you know, Italy, you know, economists calls it kind of a, a flawed democracy. It changes government so quickly. Yes. Again, it's changed. Um, where the current uh, leadership is more aligned with uh, Europe and the US. Um, mm -hmm. And that kind of really, really sunny, positive um, comments on China uh, have actually declined. But, As, oh, but you know, the, some the memorandum uh, of understanding about China joining the, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative remains in place. I'm sorry, about Italy joining the Belt and Road Initiative remains in yeah, place. It hasn't been reversed. And Italy is the only but, such European country that has entered into such an agreement? Yeah. Yeah. It's um, only a major uh, European country that has entered into such an agreement. Um, the UK has been very positive on the Belt and Road, but didn't actually sign a document. Mm -hmm. So if any other European countries actually signed on? Money. Have um, any other European countries ones. actually signed on? Like smaller ones? Yeah. Well, Greece, for instance, um, what's the status of Greece? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So European Union member states who joined um, include, um, let's see, Austria, Bulgaria, Croatia, oh, yeah. Cyprus, Czech Republic, Greece, mm -hmm. Italy. <laughs> Luxembourg, actually, ah, Malta, Poland. Really, really. Um, so, yeah. So they all have similar uh, memorandums of understanding, at least about yeah, joining. Yeah, uh, at least um, MOUs, if not like mm -hmm. more binding agreements. Interesting, interesting. But okay. we want to move on to Turkey. In the uh, discussion about uh, Turkey, you've got in your chapter about Turkey, you have a discussion of the uh, the situation of the the Uyghur refugees there. And you particularly uh, <clears throat> detail the really horrifying case of Jaililova Gulkbarhar, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. It was actually a, um, a Kazakh woman who was arrested in, um, in Xinjiang and, uh, and held there for, uh, for several months under very, very horrific circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so I went to Turkey as a way to report on how the situation in Xinjiang is a factor in um, 
China's worsening relations um, with the world and the responsibilities um, of other countries to speak up. And Turkey is interesting because um, its government is actually, you know, part of the Belt and Road, very uh, interested in having almost yearly meetings um, with China to expand ties. At the same time, its Erdogan's government is accused of being um, uh, complicit in ri rising ethno-nationalism, um, where Muslims in the country are enjoy a higher standing than others. And being majority Muslim, a lot of Turks have been pushing uh, the Turkish government to push back against what's happening to their fellow Muslims, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. So I interviewed people who are living in exile um, in Istanbul, setting up you know these communities, but they're actually they don't have a passport, they don't have a work permit. They're able, they're allowed to stay, but not to go anywhere else or to work legally because of this balancing act that Turkey finds itself in uh, when it comes to China and Xinjiang. And Halilova was a woman I met who actually spent 15 months in an internment camp in Xinjiang. Um, so she told me, you know, in her detail what happened to her. Oh, but she was so, actually a, a Kazakh citizen, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was a Kazakh citizen, a businesswoman, you know, small business, you know, selling. She went to Xinjiang, to China to buy textiles in bulk because it's, you know, China's, you know, very affordable place to buy manufactured goods in bulk and to sell back in Kazakhstan. And for some reason, she still does not know why the 53-year-old at the time, my grandmother, uh, was arrested. Um, she was dragged to windless room where she was interrogated. She was given this slip in Chinese that she was asked to sign, she refused to sign. It might, must have been, uh, or might've been a forced confession. Um, and she spent 15 months um, in Chinese from 17, 2017 in one of the internment camps that were being built and expanded at a lightning pace in Xinjiang, including the capital where she was. Um, so super overcrowded. She told me about the conditions. Um, she was only able to eat very, very basic limited food, no access to the outdoors. Um, she wasn't able to get to know anyone well because the uh, inmates were just constantly rotated around sharing a squat toilet in really, really crowded rooms. She got lice, um, had to shave her head, like all of these details, which has been corroborated by many others who either have family in the same situation or, or were, um, uh, released, um, national media. Um, so she still doesn't know why she was released, she's not sure if it's because uh, she's Kazakh and her family tried to push for her release, uh, but now she feels this responsibility to speak up about what happened to her. Well, uh, in addition to the question of why she was released, I mean, there's the question of why she was detained in the first place. I mean, she's mm -hmm. not even a Chinese, not even a Chinese no. citizen. Yeah, so it's another example of, China's authoritarianism having these very global implications where certain parts of the Chinese state and police feel that they have the right to detain international citizens. Um, yeah, it's kind of this very 
paternalistic view of you have any connection to China, you are Chinese and you are, we have the right to uh, do as we wish. Uh, right, but she, she did not even have any connection to China, apart from the fact that she was doing business there. Yeah, well, she was Uyghur um, of descent, like she spoke the language. Um, I mean, that was it, basically. <laughs> so a a I mean, Kazakh citizen of Uyghur background. Mm -hmm, of Uyghur background. And like, you know, the word Uyghur itself is pretty loose. Um, it's not like, like this, like the word Chinese, it, there's not like a signal, single you know, definition. So, well, there is, there is a Uyghur language which is related to the other Turkic languages, but mm -hmm. also distinct. Yeah, I believe, right. Yeah. yeah, so she spoke Uyghur mm -hmm. basically. In addition to Kazakh, I assume. Um, Yes. All right. Um, so, what is, what is your sense of uh, of where things stand now with these uh, with these detention camps or so called vocational training camps, as the Chinese authorities have called them at various mm -hmm. times, uh, which they are now mm -hmm. claiming have largely been closed. But a lot of people are very skeptical about this. What's your understanding of um, of where things stand on that question? Mm -hmm. There were estimates of uh, at the um, high end of up to three million people detained. What has happened yeah. to the three million people, if indeed it was three million people? So a UN body put the estimate at more around a million. Yeah. But you know the issue is that journalists and researchers who try to do reporting there, they get kicked out. They get detained themselves. There's no, um, pretty much very limited ability for uh, on the ground research to verify what. The Chinese government is saying about you know they're shutting down these camps, you know shifting them to work, um, and then even with if the shifting to work, there's been concerns and reports about um, forced labor or very um, abusive working. It's not as if the world can look away, even if um, some leaders are now working in certain factories. Um, so. I would recommend the work um, of uh, Busby journalists, including my friend Mega, Magica Palin, who they won a Pulitzer for their work using available evidence, such as interviews of survivors, as well as satellite imagery um, and, you know, leaked Chinese government documents to try to verify how many of these camps existed. They mapped out where they were exactly around Xinjiang, um, what features they had. Um, so we actually have a lot of information because of kind of innovative uh, journalistic uh, research work like this um, at a time where you can't go and tour around yourself. So using things like satellite imagery. And, um, but what's interesting is that the world hasn't able to find out more about these camps because members of the Chinese government have clearly leaked uh, troves of documents, including things that Xi Jinping said about the camps, like his quote now, show no mercy, the New York Times reported this from leaked documents. So as we talk about like all of these terrible things happening, it's often important to know, we, we know a lot about this because people in within the state, within the system have risked their lives to try to tell the world about what's going on. Um, so much of what we know is from internal leaks and interviews people give. Um, so it's good to keep in mind um, that even people working in the Chinese government aren't all the same. They are all um, on board <laughs> with what is happening. 
or people who are doing their their best within the uh, <clears throat> within the limited space that they have to try to um, slow the advance mm -hmm. to this kind of authoritarianism. Yeah, very and much. One of these reports we. I'm going ahead. I'm sorry. We saw that a uh, an official in Xinjiang was punished for not um, for trying to slow these arrests. He didn't want to see his weaker colleagues detained, so he was trying to slow down what was happening, and he got punished for that. What kind of punishment? Um, it was pretty vague. Um, so some kind of disciplinary measure. It's not anything. Yes. Yeah, not anything too. Dramatic. He was he was thrown in jail. Mm -hmm. ah, he was. Mm -hmm. He was thrown in jail for, yeah, not well, one of the camps in in a Chinese jail. Yeah, yeah. it's not clear. Unclear. Mm -hmm. Has he been released, or do do we know that? Um, yeah. So you don't know that. This was one of the thousands of leaked documents the New York Times reported on, and this was a arrest record, and it, it showed like why he was arrested. Mm -hmm. All right, why don't we uh, move on to Russia? You mentioned that, uh, you know, Turkey has sort of got this balancing act uh, with, um, with China. Uh, I think, you know, Russia is also in a kind of a balancing act, although now it's um, much more clearly aligned with China, but they've had their, certainly had their differences in the past. They signed yeah. a uh, so-called good neighbor treaty in 2001, mm -hmm. which maybe was something of a turning point. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, they've almost come to war in the past over border disputes and so on back in the 1960s at the height of the Sino-Soviet split. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so you can see I try to cover a lot of ground in the book. Um, and Russia was actually the only chapter I had to work with people who visited different cities there on my behalf because the pandemic um, kind of started as I was wrapping up my research trips. Um, so Greece, Italy, Turkey, Australia, and the US um, were all places I was able to work on on the ground. And Russia, I worked with two Russian journalists who did an amazing job. Uh, we were kind of just figuring out how to do like collaborative team reporting um, in different time zones where I could kind of play a big role in doing the stories uh, and interviews and uh, forming of questions while not actually being there. Um, they sent me a lot of videos and photos where I was able to write that chapter. Um, so very, you know, grateful for their work. And I think perhaps because they were Russians talking to Russians, um, people there were probably more frank about it um, than maybe they would have to me. So they were expressing kind of um, on the ground some complaints about, you know, Russia, did Russia, China, very friendly relationship. They were expressing worries about China. Um, so not as friendly and close uh, the reality there as you would think looking at Xi Jinping and Putin, um, you know, drinking together, talking together. There seems to be a genuine um, closeness, if not <laughs> friendship uh, between the two leaders. Um, but it's more complicated than, you know, Russian China in some ways, um, the Western hostilities and tensions with both countries are kind of pushing them closer together. So when in the past, of course, like there's been all of these conflicts with this between the Soviet Union and the CCP. All right. And uh, in terms of the, uh, <clears throat> 
tensions with the West, that's an obvious segue into your final chapter about the United States. And uh, mm-hmm. to me, you know, the sort of the, the big punchline of the book that really uh, just just blew my, just, just knocked my socks off was uh, the revelation that you were actually um, the inspiration for a character in a, uh, in, in a sort of a, a work of fiction, which has been um, promoted by Steve Bannon and the Trumpian right in this country entitled Claws of the Red Dragon. How did this, uh, <laughs> tell us about how you became aware of this. Um, yeah, a friend, American Correspondent, sent me a link to the YouTube trailer um, for Claws of the Red Dragon. And there's this main character, Jane Lee, which the website said was based on Chinese Canadian journalist, Joanna Chu, um, describing my interview in January 2019 with a former Canadian ambassador to China, John McCallum, where he contributed to Canadian government's line on the Meng Wanzhou issue and ended up losing his job. Um, for some reason, Bannon must have been really like inspired or interested in this instance. And because in the website, he talks about how, you know, it's so surprising that a journalist of Chinese descent would work on a story like this. Um, again, kind of showing this just simplistic idea that people of Chinese descent internationally are the default is being loyal to China. Um, so I'm not sure why he did this, but he said he wanted to film, to screen this film to Trump to help push him to be more tough on China. And while the film calls itself kind of like um, based on true events, it has a lot of exaggerations and uh, disinformation and misinformation, um, which really just seems to really stoke this kind of amorphous fear about China that's not based on rigorous facts. Um, so I use that as an example of why in the US, um, in the far right, but also you know across the political spectrum, for some reason there's disinformation about China that's really popular that kind of captures the public imagination in America and how that is actually counterproductive because um, it pushes out views and um, research from Chinese, China-focused research researchers and reporters that try to actually tell people what China's actually doing. Um, you know, people with important perspectives can be silenced and smeared as Chinese spies, contributing to this climate of mistrust um, that shuts people with lived experience of China out of major decision-making and power, um, powerful institutions in the States. Um, and it only really helps to strengthen Chinese propaganda efforts to vilify the West, like the West is making things up about China. Mm-hmm. Um, so people say, you know, they, they read the book, they say, this definitely happened during the Trump era, but, you know, we're not doing that anymore, as if with no Trump, everything has changed <laughs> and improved. Um, but I'm actually working on a piece to kind of update this analysis in that, you know, even with Biden in charge, um, these systemic problems of misinformation also shutting out of more nuanced perspectives and fact-based perspectives on China uh, has not um, com- has not changed. It remains an issue. Right. Nor has Trumpian politics, you know, disappeared from the political landscape merely because uh, 
really because he is not in power anymore. That's mm-hmm. yeah, not exactly. like that's in his past either. Yeah, exactly. But forgive me. I said the Claws of the Red Dragon was a book. It was actually a film. Where, yeah, it was, where was it? Um, have you actually seen it? Where, where was it distributed? Is it just online or was it actually in movie theaters? Um, it was online. I think I'm not sure which theaters, maybe limited theaters, and it was screened on a, a far right uh, um, One America Network, I believe. Did you view it? So further, <laughs> further right than Foxy's. Yes, yeah. I did watch it and I, I screamed and was very sad when they killed off my cat in the movie oh my god um, I must have posted <laughs> I post a lot of photos of my cat so they used it as a you know a made-up plot device which felt quite unbelievably nice. so, so <laughs> they you, you only found out about this once the work was complete and online it's not like they yeah. uh, you know yeah. informed you or got your consent no. that they were making this movie based on you no, no, I found out about it with the trailer and then, you know, I watched it when it came out. And also my partner is seen as like, he, he was made into his villain working for Huawei. Ugh. So. Wow. That That's was also strange. <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And like, when you talk about um, respecting the views and work of members of the Chinese diaspora, kind of that's to me that's kind of the opposite like a lot of the opposite happens not just to me but to others where our our voices and experiences are more kind of presented um by people um with certain access to grind and we're not able to speak for ourselves and then you also discuss a um a friend of bannon by the name of guo Wenghui who is uh, this uh, prominent um, businessman who uh, <clears throat> sort of uh, poses himself as a, uh, you know, an, a principal opponent of the, uh, of the CCP, but he's actually been uh, organizing protest against uh, mm-hmm. Chinese dissidents here in the United States who he um, thinks are too hard on Trump because he is soft on Trump. Yeah. So that's another strange thing um, I cover in the book um, where this disinformation rises to the level of these groups forming that are just, they have been um, protesting outside the lawns, uh, on the lawns of critics of the Chinese government and calling them Chinese spies. Here um, in the United which States. Is, in all over the world, including the United States, the FBI was involved in, you know, transferring people to safe homes. Here in Canada, police didn't get involved um, uh, in making arrests until someone was brutally beaten, which I described. Um, a friend of a, a Canadian journalist here, he was just visiting his friend and, you know, got completely brutally beaten. That happened in Vancouver? Um, uh, yeah, in the metro Vancouver, in a suburb, a sleepy suburb, which was, you know, really, really terrified by what was happening for months. Mm-hmm. Um, so I covered that in the book as well, as well as my, uh, I have stories in the Toronto Star newspaper about it. And actually, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> it's so well, convoluted, it's hard for me to. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I mean, again, concisely sum it up. <laughs> trying to, uh, you know, portray. Uh, <clears throat> Chinese dissidents in the United States and elsewhere around the world as uh, as, as being too soft on um, 
on on CCP or being even being CCP agents because they're opposed to Trumpism. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, the, the, yeah. the cynicism of it is just kind of mind boggling. Yes. Um, and that's why, like, um, I mean, it's amazing what you've done just with this interview where you brought out some of my main points. <laughs> um, but my goal was really to make these very convoluted dynamics um, accessible to examine and understand in one book. Um, I think each chapter could have been its own book, but I wanted to respect people's time. They might not um, have the time to read 10 books on China, but to start um, to be able to read one book on China that tries to, you know, stuff a lot of the necessary nuance and context in there. And I think I was helped by, you know, my interviewees being people who have, you know, so much lived experiences related to China who are able to explain better than I can about all the dynamics in their own countries. Because um, each country includes interviews with people who live there. Um, so hopefully all together, it's a way to start um, and expand on more kind of complex uh, conversations on China and China's rise. And not just about what China's doing, but what the West is failing to do better. All right, so what could the West do to do better in your estimation, just to try to wrap things up here? What, what do you actually see as, a, um, as an actual positive step forward in this extremely dystopian situation we're looking at? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I do, you know, after the book was out, you know, I talked to different government officials. I just got back from a trip to, from London. Um, there is like a growing awareness that in the past um, conversations about China were a bit too imprecise, um, you know, using the word China instead of uh, CCP or Chinese government. Um, and, but what I see as structural problems of a lack of China knowledge, a lack of um, support for people who might be targeted around the world. Unfortunately, while people say they're working on it, um, I haven't seen a single country where there are actually adequate systems and support systems in place to find out you know, the extent of what's happening um, and to protect and support people who feel that their family members in China or they themselves living around the world are in danger or, or are being silenced because of their fears, intimidation. Um, and there's a lot to, of work to be done in spotlighting the work of uh, people of Chinese descent uh, on these issues and not treating them like they're spies or treating them like their loyalty is to Beijing by virtue of what they look like or their last names. Um, I've been called a CCP stooge. <laughs> um, so, okay, so by whom have you been called a CCP stooge? <laughs> um, by just like waves of trolls and right just on the internet chatter. Yeah, online chatter. Online but chatter. I think that reflects um, broader problems in the public where um, a conservative member in Canada questioned the loyalty of our head of public health because she's of Chinese descent working on COVID. Um, 
questioning, are you loyal to Canada or China, Theresa Tan? So it happens on an official public level too. Not to me, but to, to right. others. Right, 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 right. <clears throat> well, um, so there's a lot, there's growing awareness, but. Having to walk this line yeah. of, of, you know, trying to find a position that loans no comfort either to uh, the totalitarianism of the Chinese state and its global ambitions, nor mm -hmm. of, you know, um, you know, xenophobia and the, uh, and the Trumpian right here in the United States and in the West and in Canada is uh, definitely, you know, a mm -hmm. big challenge, which is facing progressives and is only going to be a, a deeper challenge in the years to come. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think your book actually, you know, starts a, uh, is a big step towards starting a conversation that very badly needs to be had. Yeah, thank you so much for, you know, all your questions. I feel like you know parts of my book better than I do. So uh, thank you so much for this interview. Well, thanks for joining us. Joanna Chiu, author of China Unbound, A New World Disorder. And uh, I hope uh, this interview is going to encourage some people to check out your book. Yeah, thanks so much, Bill. Sure. And so you've got a, yeah, a dinner have any other... you need to get to, right? <laughs> yes. Well, right. yeah, the holidays are starting up. And again, yes. um, it holidays remind me of a time when um, Chinese police would make these arrests of high-profile activists or politicians or lawyers around Christmas time because they know people are busy. Um, so it's, you know, there's a dark side of Christmas in my head because I'm wondering who will they arrest this time or will they not even bother because they're no longer that concerned about um, international criticism. So we'll see. Um, one of my friends, Sophia Huang, she's a journalist who worked on Me Too issues. Um, she's detained and continues to be detained. So yeah, it's, it's weird working on a space in, in China. In, 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 uh, I believe in, Guan, in Guangdong, in southern China. Um, so, yeah, thank you for <laughs> getting people to okay, well, Joanne, care about this. It's been this really issue. fascinating. We'll definitely be continuing to follow your work. And uh, please stay in touch with us. Keep us, keep us uh, informed thank of your so activities much. and uh, journalism. And uh, try to have a happy holiday in spite of everything, okay? Yes, you too. Thank you so much. Okay. 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 Good night, Joanna. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.